0: You know, one of the the fun and frustrating dynamics of having uh, two small children at home is that MJ, who's almost four, can do a lot of things that Hannah, who just turned two, cannot do. Hannah loves her big sister, and she just wants to do whatever MJ is doing a lot of the time. And MJ's, you know, a good big sister. She'll help her, protect her. But she's not always that benevolent. (laughs) One of the things that... uh, MJ can do that Hannah hasn't figured out to do yet is to open doors when they're closed. And MJ often uses that to great advantage, and she shuts Hannah out of rooms or into rooms all the time. Uh, Sometimes just because she's being thoughtless and hasn't considered, you know, the fact that her sister can't get in or out. But other times she closes the door knowing exactly what she's doing, because she's being selfish or downright mean. Now, of course, Becky and I shut Hannah into and out of rooms often as well, right? Right? We don't do it to be mean or to be thoughtless, but because we want to protect her. We close doors, we even lock doors, so that she can't get into our cleaning supplies, or so we can have privacy in the bathroom, or because she needs to have a nap and she won't sleep if the door's open. But from her perspective, it's just frustrating, right? She knows she wants something, and she's being blocked from it. It feels mean or senseless, even when it isn't. You know, our experience with God can be a lot like that. Sometimes we want something so badly, and God just shuts the door in our face and says, No. He doesn't give an explanation. And today we're looking at a passage that Felix just read for us that's all about God closing doors in ways that, that are hard to understand. In particular, this isn't about Paul wanting a job promotion or to get into school or a relationship. It's him about, about him trying to evangelize. He's trying to go and share the gospel with people who don't know Jesus. He's on a missions trip in what's modern-day Turkey, and wherever he turns, it seems like God just shuts the door and doesn't let him go and share the gospel. He slams the door in their faces. It's confusing. Now, many of us have experienced what seems like closed doors when we want to share our faith, right? It's, it's frustrating. But honestly, I think if we think about this a little bit in our lives, I think a good portion of the time, we have the wrong perspective on on those closed doors. We don't really know what they mean in a biblical way. And even honestly, I think we often use them as kind of an excuse to not be bold and not be obedient. call it a closed door when it's not really that. We're going to look at this passage today and we're going to see quite a different perspective on what God's doing when he closes doors in evangelism and how we should act in response. So our big question for today is, what does a closed door in evangelism mean? What what does it mean? And So we're going to look at, to answer that, we're going to look at three smaller questions that show up in this passage. So if our big question is, what does a closed door in evangelism mean? Our first small question is, how, how do we even know that God has closed the door in evangelism. How do we know that it really is a closed door? How do we know that God has closed the door in evangelism? So we pick up our passage in Acts chapter 16, starting in verse 6. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mycenae and went down to Troas. Now, there are certain kind of Bible passages that I know that mo- when most of us read it, our eyes just glaze over and we think, I have no idea what I just read. I've, I, there's lots of names. I, I don't know where we are. I admit, I admit that this is a confusing passage. So as I said, on the back of your notes, if you grab them, there's a map uh, that shows you kind of what's going on in the region that we're in. I, don't, I didn't trace the journey, but you can trace it for yourself for extra credit if you want. Um, but here's the deal, this is all part of the Roman Empire, and so many of the names in these verses are referring to Roman provinces, places that Rome had carved out of the land to say, okay, this is for taxation and for having a senator and we'll divide you up in these regions. But some of the names in here are actually also older regions that the Romans ignored when they carved out the land, as they often happens when in this kind of thing. So there's these Roman provinces, but there's also these older regions that kind of go across provinces sometimes. And of course, there are also some cities. So last week we saw how Paul and Silas and Timothy were visiting the churches that were already established in the area, right? Paul and Barnabas had gone before and set up a bunch of churches. These churches are in the region of Phrygia, within the Roman province of Galatia. So verse 6 in our passage says, Paul and his companion traveled through the region of Phrygia and Galatia. But now they want to go to places that have no church. They want to go beyond where they were at last time. So they plan to go to the Roman province of Asia, which is the next province further west. They start to head in that direction, but it says that they are kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. Holy Spirit won't let them in. The door's shut. So they continue in Phrygia and Galatia. They head north, and they come to another Roman province. Verse 7 continues, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. Again, the door's shut. So they skirt around the region of Mysia, in the Roman province of Asia, and they end up in the coastal town of Troas, which, by the way, is sort of in the same area-ish of Troy, if you know that story. So what's going on here? Well, Paul and Silas and Timothy, they're trying to go places that no one has ever heard about Jesus so they can tell them about him. But the Holy Spirit won't let them do it. God Won't let them. In fact, verse 7 says the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. We talked last week about how the book of Acts is about what Jesus continued to do and teach on earth after he ascended bodily into heaven to sit at the right hand of the throne of his Father. Jesus is the hero of Acts. Jesus acts in Acts, but he acts through his Holy Spirit and he acts through his church. And here, in this passage, we're seeing Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, closing the door for members of His church, trying to expand the church. Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, the, whole, the Spirit of Jesus, closes the door for Paul and Silas and Timothy twice, as they tra- try to take the, the good news of Jesus and his salvation from sins to people who've never heard it before. But our question is, how did they know the door was closed? What does that mean? We're not told exactly what happened. It may have been through a vision that they get from, from God. We'll see one of those later on in this story. It may have also just been through circumstances. It's possible that, you know, in their last trip, they got chased by the Jewish people from town to town, so they get kicked out of the next town too. It's possible that proactively these towns have been warned against Paul and, and uh, Silas and Timothy in their ministry. And they go there and, and find they can't even get a chance to be, start preaching. They get kicked out as soon as they try. We don't really know. Either way, they found the door shut. But, but here's what we are told. We're told that they knew that the door was shut because they tried to go through it. That's the, question, that's the answer to our, our first question. right? How do we know when God has closed the door in evangelism? Well, we only know God has closed the door once we've tried to go through it. You know, so often we, we talk about waiting for an opportunity, opportunity to share the gospel. So we quietly wait for just the right moment, but it never seems to come. Paul and his companions aren't, aren't, aren't doing that. They're not quietly waiting for an opportunity. They're not looking for, you know, a coffee shop to sit in and see who comes to talk to them and ask them about God. Right? They're looking for opportunities. They're, they're, they're trying to make them happen. They're not waiting for a sign Although they they end up having to because God won't let them do it. They're trying to find people to talk to about Jesus. You know, they're doing what my daughter Hannah does. When she finds herself in a hallway full of closed doors, she goes to one and bangs on it and rattles the handle and says, Let me in! And if that doesn't work, she goes to the next one and bangs on that one and rattles the handle and says, Let me in! In fact, she says, Let me in, whether she's in or out, trying to get out. She just says, Let me in. What does it look like for us to try the doors? To see if they're closed. You know, we're not missionaries traveling around trying to share the gospel. But maybe some of us should be. You know, I'm still praying that God will raise up some of us to go from this place and share the gospel of Jesus in other lands. And I hope you're praying for that too. For yourself, for your brothers and sisters in Christ. And I know that some of you have literally gone and knocked on doors and literally had them shut in your face try and tell people about Jesus. And you know, for most of us, it's just going to start with a sense of urgency. That this is important. That every person that you talk to who doesn't know Jesus needs to know about Jesus. That the opportunity you are looking for is the conversation that you're having. That God ordained in his sovereign plan to send you a Christian who has the spirit of Jesus living in you to speak to this person who is lost and going to hell. That's your opportunity. That's your door. Knock. Rattle the handle. Do what you can to enter with the good news. Again, there's another question that goes along with that. What exactly does that look like? How do do we do it? We'll talk about that more in a minute, but first we need to look at our second question that comes up in this passage. The first question is, how do we know that the door is closed? we we try to go through it first, and and if we can't, then we know it's closed. The second question is, why does God close doors in evangelism? Why does that happen? Look at verse 8 again. Verse 8 says, So they passed passed by Mycenae and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia, standing and begging him, Come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision... We got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now, before we dive into this, I want to, to, uh, you to notice something quickly. There's a subtle change that happens in these verses. Look at verse 8. Verse 8 says, So they passed by Mycenae and went down to Troas. Then look at verse 10. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready to leave at once for Macedonia. So apparently this is where Paul meets Luke. Luke's in Troas. And he goes with them uh, to to Macedonia. He goes from being the narrator outside the story to being part of the story. This is going to happen, come and go a few times as we read through Acts, where it goes from being they to we, and Luke comes and joins and then stays behind, and it happens about three times as we go through. Interesting timbit aside, here's what we need to think about. Paul, Silas, Timothy, and and Luke are now at the westernmost edge of Turkey. If you look at your map, Troas is right there on the coast. And they've utterly failed to share the gospel with anyone new. They've gone through the whole country. Jesus wouldn't let them do it. I imagine that they're discouraged. They're confused. But when they're in this town of Troas, Paul has a, a dream, a vision. And the vision is of a man begging him. And he says, come over to Macedonia and help us. This is the direction that they've been waiting for. God, what do you want us to do? How is, why is this not working? Finally, there's a door that's open, and so they don't waste any time. They get on the next boat across the water to Macedonia, which, again, if you're looking at your map, is the Roman province. That's sort of the northern half of Greece. God didn't let his crew, Paul and his crew spend any time in Asia or Bithynia because he wanted to, wanted to send them to Macedonia. Yeah, but why? Well, let's keep reading and finding out. Verse 11 says, from Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Tham- Samothrace. And the next day, we went on to Neapolis. From there, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony of the leading city and, and the leading city of that district of Macedonia, and we stayed there several days. So they get on a boat. It takes them two days to get to Macedonia across the water. They spend the night in a little island in between called Samothrace, and they land at the port city of Napolis on the coast of Macedonia, and then hike a few miles inland to Philippi. Philippi, we're told, is a really important city. It's a Roman colony, which means that it's a city where Romans were transplanted to live there in these other areas. This isn't just a city that they've taken over. They've kind of made this city for Romans. The people who live there aren't taxed or oppressed like the surrounding cities are. The culture was uh, very, very Roman. Everything about the city is very, very Roman. and This is a very affluent and important hub in the area. But what we see is because the city is so Roman there actually isn't a Jewish synagogue. Look at verse 3. Sorry, verse 13. (laughs) On the Sabbath we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of the uh, one of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. So they go out There's no synagogue. They're going to go outside the city and pray, and they find, oh, there's already Jewish people that meet there. There's a bunch of women that come and pray here on the Sabbath. One of these ladies is a a woman named Lydia. She's actually from the Roman province of Asia that they weren't allowed to go into, a city called Thyatira. And it tells us that she's a merchant in purple cloth, which means that she's fabulously wealthy. Back then, purple dye, the only way you could get it really was to, to, to go diving under the water and harvest sea snails. There was a certain kind of sea snail, and its name in Greek sounds like the word purple, that's where it comes from, that had a secretion in them. You had to like (laughs) milk their secretions out of their glands, and it would come out as a purple dye. In order to get .05 ounces of purple dye, you had to harvest 12,000 of these snails. So purple was only for the richest of the rich, and Lydia, in dealing with this stuff, is a very rich lady. But more importantly, verse 14 tells us the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. She and her whole household believed and are baptized, we read in the next few verses. And it happened. The reason that she believed is because God opened her heart. God closed the doors for Paul and his company in Turkey because he was going to open hearts in Macedonia. Right? Why didn't God just open hearts in, in Turkey? I don't know. That's God's prerogative. If you keep reading in Acts, eventually we'll find that God did come back and have a ministry in Asia. And he would be amazingly successful. And likewise, the gospel also spreads in Bithynia, and all the other provinces in Turkey. We know that because if you read the, the letter of 1 Peter, the introduction of it says, Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ, that's who's writing it, to God's elect exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through his sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Now, Notice, there's another one of those passages that you may not pay attention to what they're saying because it's a bunch of names, but those are the same provinces that we've just been talking about where Paul was blocked out of. But also, Peter says that these Christians in these provinces are elect. They were, they've been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. God has a plan for the people in those provinces. He says a plan to save them through the blood of Jesus, to sanctify them through the Holy Spirit. They were his elect people. God had a plan for them, to save them. But it wasn't the same as Paul's plan. And likewise, we're going to meet some people in Macedonia now that are likewise God's elect people. They're chosen by God for salvation through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit and the blood of Jesus, and God's going to open their hearts. God, in his sovereignty, shut the door on Paul because he wanted to direct him to the hearts he was going to open elsewhere and because he had a plan for those other people at another time. So here's the answer to our question. Why does God close the door in evangelism? Well, God closes doors and God opens hearts because he's sovereign over salvation. He's the one that says no or yes, this person's going to get saved because he's sovereign. We don't understand all the details of those things, but we trust him. We trust that his plan is good. Listen, here's what that means for you if you're a Christian. God has people that he wants you to share the gospel with. God has people all over the city and all over the world who, are all, who already belong to him. They just don't know it yet. And he's going to open their hearts. And if we're out there knocking on doors, literal or metaphorical, we'll find some of those doors shut. But God will also lead us to some doors that are open too. Whether we plant the seed or water it or get to see the harvest, that's up to God. But we can trust him and his good plan. Now, of course, there's still the question of of what does it look like for us to knock on those doors and rattle those doorknobs? That leads us to our third question. Right? The first question was, how do we know the doors are shut? Well, we have to try to go go through them. Why does God shut the doors was our second question. Well, God shuts doors and opens hearts because he's sovereign over salvation. Our third uh, question is, well, what's our job? What's our job as God closes doors and opens hearts? What do we do? To continue in this passage, we see that Lydia persuades Paul and his companions to stay with her in his home. This home would have been a big home because she was so wealthy, and by the end of this passage, we'll find that it's become a meeting place for the newly established church. It's kind of a, a church uh, building now. But for now, it's the, it's the missions team's base as they evangelize the city. Some time passes, and, and they go out to try and pray again at this river. It's probably another Sabbath. And verse 16 picks up and says this. Once again, when we were going to the place of prayer, we we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. So this young girl, the slave girl, is possessed by a demon. You know, we meet several demon-possessed people in the Gospels and in Acts. Often they're wild and uncontrollable. But this girl makes money for the men who own her by telling the future. This is... Strange to us, right? But it would have been fairly common or understandable for those who worshipped the Greek and Roman gods. Part of the worship of the false god Apollo involved priestesses priestesses who were possessed by spirits to give oracles and tell fortunes. That's just what they would expect when they went to worship Apollo. This is what the Old Testament calls divination or witchcraft, right? Trying to know things through talking to spirits. You know, in the gospels, when demon possessed people meet Jesus, they couldn't help but tell the truth about him. They recognize Jesus for who he is, he's God himself, and they cry out to him. They knew his power and they were afraid of him. Similarly, this demon possessed girl sees Paul and the others, and in, in verse 17, 17 she says, she followed verse 17 says, She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. This continued for days. She dogged them for days and followed and shouted and shrieked. And at some point, Paul has enough. The NIV says that he was annoyed. Another translation would be he's disturbed. I think that's a (laughs) a useful way to think about it. There's a demon just shouting at us all the time. And so we're told he he casts out the demon in the name of Jesus, and immediately the demon's gone. Now, I, I have questions about this, right? Why didn't he just cure her of this demon on the first day he met her? And what happened to her? Did she become a Christian? Some of the commentaries that I read assume that she became a Christian, but we're really just not told what happened to her. What we are told is what her masters do in response to this. Her owners are angry because Paul just killed their golden goose. With no more evil spirit in this poor, oppressed slave girl, there's no more fortune telling and no more money for her owners. Now, think about this for just a second. Just think about these men. Right? These men, they have a slave who they know can legitimately tell the future. He, she knows things because of the spirit that's in her. And she tells them over and over again, these men are servants of the Most High God, and they're going to tell you how to be saved. you think that maybe they'd be interested in listening. And then this man that she's been shouting about has the power through Jesus to cast the demon out of this girl. You think they might be impressed by that and maybe would want to listen to him. But all they care about is their paycheck. The doors of their heart are closed because they love money more than anything else. And so they drag Paul and Silas to the public forum, to the Roman officials, and they accuse them of rabble-rousing. They said, these are the rabble-rousing Jews who are trying to stir up our city and get us to do things that aren't lawful. None of that was true, right? They didn't tell them the true reason they were angry, which is just because they had no more income. And so the city, the so-called justice system of the city, sentences Paul and Silas to a public beating and at least a night in jail. That's not abnormal for the Roman Empire, right? If you're not a Roman citizen, you don't have really any rights. But the the city officials are going to regret the fact that they didn't know that Paul and Silas were actually Roman citizens and what they did was highly illegal. You know, I think the, what we need to see here is that even though Paul and Silas were directly, by a vision of God, called to go to Philippi to preach the gospel, and even though some people are responding to the gospel, they still faced closed doors. Hearts that are closed, ears of justice that are closed, and now literally closed prison doors as well. They're chained to a wall, their feet are in stalk, stalks on the ground, they're bruised, they're in pain. If anybody has a reason to be in a bad mood, it was them. But look at verse 25, look at what it says. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening to them. What are they doing? They're, they're praying out loud. They're singing out loud. They're singing praises to God. Not quietly to themselves, you know, privately, but so everyone else can hear. All the other prisoners are listening. They're amazed by the joy of, of these men who have no earthly reason to be joyful. And then in verse 26, the miracle happens, right? Suddenly there was a, such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and at once the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. Now, this is pretty amazing, right? There's an earthquake that frees everybody, doesn't hurt anybody. We know how destructive earthquakes can be. This is a a very specific earthquake that God sent. And it's not the first jailbreak, miraculous jailbreak, that we've seen in the story of Acts, right? Back in Acts chapter 12, Peter was freed from prison by an angel the night before he was scheduled to be executed. But this is a different scenario because Paul and Silas don't escape. In fact, everyone was set free, but none of them escape. They don't even try. They could have. But look at what happens in verse 27. The jailer woke up, and when he saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We're all here. This jailer knew as an employee of the Roman government that if any of the prisoners had escaped on his watch, his family would face huge public shame. And then he would be executed. So he decides to try and forego that by killing himself. But Paul knows what he's thinking and assures him that no one's left. So verse 29, to 29, the jailer comes or calls for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out of the jail and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now this story, God miraculously opens the doors of the prison, but even more importantly, he opens the heart of this man. And just like with Lydia, Paul and uh, Silas tell him about Jesus, and his whole household believe and they're baptized. But here, here's another question that we should be asking from this Why did the jailer ask them what he needed to do to be saved? Where did that come from? Why was he thinking about that? Because they'd been singing and praying about Jesus since they got there, right? He knew what they were all about, they hadn't kept it to themselves. He knew what they believed and then this earthquake, the fear of shame and death, the assurance that the prisoners hadn't escaped, all these things brought him to the point that he was ready to listen to whatever they had to say. You know, we don't know what God's doing in people's hearts to prepare them to hear about Jesus. It's not our worry. But our job is just to open our mouths. Right, that's that's the answer to our third question. What's our job as God closes doors and opens hearts? God closes doors and opens hearts. Our job is just to open our mouths. You know, maybe there are some people here today that think, you know, I'm like that jailer. God's working in my heart; it's open. I want to know how to be saved. I, I want to know Jesus. If that's you, that's true of you, then the simple answer is that you need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Paul and Silas say. Well, let me, let me flesh out what that means for you. It means that you believe that Jesus is God. It means you believe that he loves you, that he knows best for you. You need to know that he's the Lord. That he, he's the Lord, not you. That what he says is good, is good. And what he says is bad, is bad. And that we aren't always going to match up with that understanding, and we don't live up to that standard. And because we don't live up to that standard, we're a sinner. You're a sinner. There are things in your life that you think are good that he says, no, those things are not good, those are wicked. And so you need to be forgiven, as all of us do. The forgiveness was purchased to you for you and for, for me and for all of us at a great cost. Not to us, but to him. Jesus in his love became a human and lived a perfect life without any sin. And then he died on the cross for us. He took our place. He took our punishment so that we don't have to be punished for our sins. He paid the price on the cross. He died and then he rose again in victory. He defeated sin and death in his resurrection. Trust that his death and resurrection is enough for your sin. And follow him as your Lord and you will be saved. That's the message of the gospel that Paul and Silas and Timothy were taking. That's the message of the gospel that we believe in our church. It's the message of the gospel that each of us needs to hear over and over and build our lives on. Every person who is sitting in this room who is a Christian is a Christian because God opened your heart to that good news about Jesus. We need to, we need to be willing to tell people that. But what's really worth seeing in this story is that Paul and Silas weren't sitting in jail trying to evangelize. They just weren't afraid to pray and sing out loud. They're not sitting there thinking, what can we do to tell all these people about Jesus? They're just living out their faith out loud. And this is the problem that most of us have. We're just afraid to talk about Jesus. I don't mean that we're afraid to tell people they need to be saved. I mean we just clam up about Jesus and pretend we don't believe in him when we're around other people. Isn't that true? You know, a few years back, I was a best man in my friend's wedding. And uh, I didn't really know most of the other groomsmen. I knew that a bunch of them came from the church that he went to. And so I went into this weekend. You know, it was a, a weekend of kind of being with them, just assuming that we were all Christians. And I was wrong. <laughs> uh, but twice that weekend, I, I got really good opportunities to share the gospel. I had really great conversations with unsaved men who were part of this group. And it all started just because I just talked to them like they were Christians. I just talked about how God had led me and how good he was to me. And then they were just kind of like, you know, Steve, I'm not actually a Christian. And I'm ashamed to tell you that when they told me that, I was a bit embarrassed. I realized I'd let the cat out of the bag. I I talked to them like I don't usually talk to people who I know aren't Christians. But both times, they wanted to know more. And I got to share the gospel with them just because I just went into it talking like I would talk to a Christian. And we do that, don't we? we? We talk to people differently depending on whether we think they love Jesus or don't. We pretend like we believe different things. I don't think we do it consciously, but we do it. I, I don't know what happened to either of those guys. But God opened the door for me to tell them about him just because I opened my mouth, even, even without really meaning to. If we talk like we believe about God so, uh, sorry, if we talk like we believe in God all the time some people would mock and scorn us wouldn't they others would say huh that's, that's interesting tell me more and some people would be ready to say what must I do to be saved our problem is that we try so hard to keep our heads down that we just don't talk about Jesus in public And so the lost people that God has put in our lives maybe don't even know that we love Jesus and they certainly don't even know what it means They don't know the peace and the joy that we've received from him, the way that he's changed us and is changing us, the blessing of having our sins forgiven. They don't know that because we haven't told them. We need to stop thinking about sharing Jesus as a sales pitch that we have to work ourselves up to and start thinking of it as just the overflow of the heart that Jesus has changed. Because that's what Jesus, that's what it is. If God closes doors and opens hearts, And he's opened your heart if you're a Christian. Let people see that. And let God worry about the rest. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I'm so grateful that you are sovereign over salvation. I'm not big enough. We're not big enough and and smart enough and wise enough to figure out how to do this. And and you are. We can just leave it in your hands and, and trust you. That you are going to shut doors and you are going to open hearts and we just have to open our mouths. Help us to be faithful to that. We thank you, Lord, for the truth. The truth that we have been saved through your sovereign grace. that Our hearts have been opened by your Holy Spirit to believe in the truth about Jesus and to be changed. Help us to live that out. And as we sing and then take communion together, Lord, I pray that that truth of the gospel would just be soaking into us and marinating in us and that we would be thankful and grateful and we would worship you well. Help us to remember the truth of Jesus' death on the cross for our sins as we take this family meal together in communion. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.